Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised. I worship you. Welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Bible Studies. Romans 10.17 says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Over the next 20 minutes, you're going to hear an important message directly from God's Word and have your faith and knowledge increased. All you have to do is listen. Now, here are your teachers. Hi, everyone. I'm Andy Baylog. And I'm Jordan Pine. Welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Bible Studies. Let me start by saying thank you to all of our listeners over the years for your support and being a part of our family. As many of you might know by now, we have learned that one of the greatest sermons of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, was spoken by our Lord Jesus specifically to his disciples and not the multitudes who followed him. Well, did you also know that all of us believers today that still seek to grow a stronger relationship with Jesus are disciples as well. Now, you might ask, Andy, how is this even possible? I sin way too much, and I'm far from being a perfect Christian. Well, my answer to that is yes, we have all made mistakes in the past. But as Scripture teaches us, we should never look back, but instead press forward towards the bigger and better things. A key theme in the Sermon on the Mount is that we disciples keep our eyes focused on gaining treasures that can be included with our salvation. Today, we will seek the scriptures to see if these treasures will be here for us on earth or waiting for us in heaven. Join us now as we listen to the Word of God. A reading from the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So, if the light that is in you is darkness, How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That was Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. As we often do, Today, we will be using what Jordan and I call the SPACE method to begin our study of these Bible verses. SPACE is just an acronym that we created that reminds us to consider the SP, speaker, the A, for audience, and the C, context of a Bible reading before attempting an E, explanation. There's the word SPACE. So to begin, we already know these verses are part of the famous Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, the speaker is obviously Jesus Christ. 
And a key point to consider when studying his sermon is that Jesus directed all these teachings to his disciples, not the common believer. Matthew 5 verses 1 to 2 reads, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, and so on. Therefore, we can easily ascertain that the audience here are his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount, which is covered in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, are key verses to study, live by, and thoroughly understand for any Christian wanting to grow intimately with Jesus, to have him not only as Savior, but also as Lord of your life, hence striving to become a disciple. Okay, so let's look at the C context of Jesus Christ's sermon here and some facts regarding it. You know, the traditional location for the Mount, where the Sermon on the Mount was given, is on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This sermon takes place relatively early in Jesus Christ's ministry, after he had been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, and had begun his ministry. Matthew 4.23 says that by this time, he had gone throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and also proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom there. The last part of that verse helps us understand that his motive for giving the Sermon on the Mount was to teach about the kingdom. And for further evidence of this, remember who his audience was. As verse 25 says, although great crowds from all around the area were following him and and heard the sermon, he really gave it to his disciples. So we have a smaller group out of a much larger group being taught here. Andy, why is that symbolically significant? Well, Jordan, the short answer to that is that we look at Christianity today and we look at Christians as a whole. You know, there's there's your fair-weather Christian that likes to go to church on holidays and they accept Jesus as their savior, but they kind of do the bare minimum in their walk. And then you've got people that I truly believe our listeners of our show and people that are seeking him more than just wanting to go to church once in a while. These are people that are are studying scripture and wanting to know more that are looking for that intimate relationship. So symbolically, what we saw on the Sermon on the Mount is that there were thousands of people following him that trusted him as being the savior. However, there was only a select few that decided to go up the mountain, sit down and listen to his sermon. Those are his disciples. And hopefully that's what we are today. We are a smaller group seeking the Lord's face on an intimate level. Now, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount are a key element of Christian ethics, and they've been fundamental as the quote-unquote code of conduct for the followers of Jesus. Not for salvation, of course, which includes anyone who believes in Jesus' finished work on the cross, but rather for reward so that they can serve God on a higher level. Let me read John chapter 1, verse 12, which simplifies who a Christian believer is, and it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You know, Paul explains what qualifies as believing for salvation in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 4. And that reads, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried according to the scriptures, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Simply put, those words right there by Paul are the gospel of grace. That is the gospel of grace. Right, Andy, and believing it is all that's necessary for salvation. 
But that's not all that's necessary for salvation into the kingdom and the earning of reward. This becomes clear in other places in Paul's letters. For example, consider what he wrote to the Ephesian church, people who were already saved. Ephesians 1, 8-19 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what the hope of his calling is, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. In other words, he prayed for God to reveal to the members of this church deeper truths so they would have hope in a future reward. Putting these verses from Paul together, the ones from Corinthians and from Ephesians, we see there are people who are saved by believing in Jesus as Savior, and also Christians who mature to become disciples by their obedience to certain principles. And those principles are found in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, Jordan. So now that we've considered the speaker, the audience, and the context, we're much better equipped to give an explanation. The key passage we need to focus on from our reading today is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. And I'll read it again. It says, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. So to begin, let's remember salvation is in Jesus Christ alone without any of our added works. And from this day forward, know that every time you read from or hear someone quote from the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus' words are spoken to people who are already believers. His words are commandments for us to follow in order to enter into the reward. And that's a great treasure, which is the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is teaching us how to live the believer's life. Our ministry, Jordan, is to use the word to show believers that there are new things that God wants to give us. He wants to reward us. There's a new place for our hearts to be, a new understanding, and it's excitement in this world to have that knowledge. It's a new outlook on life, which will lead us to a new commitment to our Lord. It's a new way of living our lives, and it causes us to have a new focus for our lives. Right, and all this can be ours if we meet a single condition which is summed up in this one verse that Jesus spoke a short while later, Matthew 6, 33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The key word here is first. We must put God's interests ahead of our interests. We must invest our time and energy into heavenly things instead of worldly things, because the return on that investment is everlasting. As for our human needs and wants, the Bible says that God knows what they are before we do. When our heart's desires are spiritually motivated, the Lord will bless us both in heaven and also during our time here on earth. In other words, in order to gain that special place in Christ Jesus' kingdom and inherit the opportunity to be vice regents with our Lord when he returns, that is, kings ruling underneath the king of kings, we must seek the kingdom first. And if we do this throughout our lives, all the necessities of life, food, clothing, shelter, will be taken care of. In fact, the Bible says they will be super added to give the proper sense of the Greek word in Matthew 6.33. It has this sense of repeatedly added. And based on that definition, we can make this claim. The more we seek the kingdom, the more God will repeatedly and consistently add what we need to our lives. But again, it's conditional. We must be seeking the kingdom first. And I think this is where some believers get confused because, 
you know, God's not a genie and he cannot be fooled either. You aren't going to trick him into giving you a mansion or a yacht or a sports car just by invoking Matthew 6.33. I mean, most of those exotic cars are too small to fit more than two people. So you can't even claim you'll use it to take guys to church. <laughs> right, Jordan. You know, another reason people get misled here is the definition of the kingdom of God is made unclear or maybe it's mistaught. So they don't know what the kingdom is or what exactly they need to be seeking. Well, let me say that most people think the kingdom is salvation. No, that's actually not correct. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is already speaking to believers. These people are already saved. And even that was of God's will. Keep in mind, Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's Jesus speaking to the apostles. In other words, we did not choose Christianity to be our religion of choice while trying to find ourselves one day. No, the Bible clearly tells us in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, that God the Father chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. And then the following verse says, in love, God the Father predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Yeah, that's right, folks. According to scripture, it was God's pre-planned will to save every one of us. So for that, I say all glory goes to him. Amen. Another thing to point out is that some people think that seeking the kingdom of God means seeking to serve in and support the church. I mean, that's a logical thought process. And certainly the church can and, and should have a regular place in a Christian's life. But that isn't what Jesus meant when he told us to seek his kingdom first. You know, the pure and true answer from Scripture is that Christians are to seek that which is yet to come. That's the meaning of the word hope that the Bible says every Christian should have in their lives. And our Lord Jesus speaks of coming back to earth to establish his millennial reign and kingdom over this earth. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said in John 14, speaking of his return to heaven. And he continued, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. So it's very forward-looking. Yeah, Jordan. And remember, we trust Jesus Christ alone for salvation and to maintain our salvation forever, not the church or what the church has for us. You know, Scripture says salvation is in Jesus Christ alone, by faith and not by works. It is only then that we spiritually become born again. And now that we are spiritually saved, Jesus teaching us to seek first the kingdom speaks of the quality of life that we mature and grow into so that God can use our lives. That's the goal. Now, we must all understand that entering the coming kingdom takes spiritual works on our part, and that's us submitting to God's Holy Spirit working through us. Now, in these passages, Jesus tells us disciples not to worry about the things Gentiles, referring then to non-believers, worry about, okay? So, We'll look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 to 33 again, and I'll read it. And it reads, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Yes, God knows that none of us are perfect. We all fall short of his glory. And yet, praise God, he loves us unconditionally anyway. So let's not be discouraged by the mistakes we make along the way. Even if you have epically failed him in the past and you think, how could I be worthy of serving him in his kingdom? 
don't be afraid. This is why we cling to the hope of his calling, confess our sins to him, and seek him each day. And that's why we titled this lesson, Don't Look Back. We couldn't help but think about Lot's wife and what happened to her. Andy, can you recap her story for our listeners? Sure, Jordan. Her story is told in Genesis chapter 19. I'll pick it up in verse 15. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. And then I pick up in verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So Jordan, what's our takeaway from the story? It's quite simple, actually. Unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, God already judged us for our sins and our mistakes in Jesus Christ when he died for the sin of the world over 2,000 years ago. But if we look back at our past and dwell on our regrets, we can't go forward and live a life serving and honoring our Lord Jesus Christ for all that he has done for us. And if you think that Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt is maybe indicative of losing our salvation, that's incorrect. Salt in typology is actually a good thing. Jesus calls us the salt of the earth during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We have to remember that back in those days, salt was actually a preservative for meat. And when Lot's wife became salt, that is actually God's way of teaching us that she is preserved, but no longer alive to walk with him on the earth and to serve him. So let's forget what's behind us and move on with God. Yeah, that's interesting uh, study of typology, Andy. And your, your point is exactly on point. I think, um, you know, this teaching is also supported in the New Testament in Philippians 3, where Paul writes that forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I, speaking of himself, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And, you know, we should do the same. We should press on. We should not look back to yesterday. And we should also not worry about tomorrow. You know, they say depression is being stuck in the past and anxiety is being stuck in the future. But the healthy mind and the godly soul dwells in the present. We must do the best we can for today because, as the Bible puts it, today has enough issues to concern us. The general point is that worry is a sin that holds us back with fear, and worry opens the doors of doubt, which is the opposite of faith. Looking back is one thing. The world agrees that we should let bygones be bygones and not dwell on the past. But not looking forward, as suggested in today's lesson, is a trickier one. The Bible does teach us to look forward and live for the future, and that future being the next life, life in the kingdom. Jordan, I think of Jesus' teaching that we shouldn't store up treasures for ourselves on earth, but store them up in heaven instead, and so on. Meanwhile, the world tells us to live for the moment, which usually means just be carnal. So which is it? Should we live for the future or not? Yeah, so I think the, the answer, Andy, is in this uh, concept of worry, as in lack of trust. You know, that's the key. So if we're looking to, to the future anxiously, 
you know, if we're worrying about the future, then the Bible says we're committing a sin because we're not trusting in God to have, you know, all of it handled. You know, God's outside of time. Um, he's told us what, you know, he's going to do for us. He, he, he wants good for us and not ill and that we should trust him. So looking forward in a sense of anxiety is what the sin is, but looking forward in a, in a hopeful way, you know, being excited about the, the next phase, the kingdom, um, you know, looking forward in hope and living in hope and, and doing what God wants us to do with that future vision is obviously the opposite. It, it's what God wants us to do. It's our way to exercise our faith. So I think that's the key, the key difference, you know, living in the present uh, means taking it one day at a time. And that, again, that's speaking against worrying. It's speaking about, you know, each day has enough trouble for, of its own, the Bible says, you know, to worry about. But, um, but there's also that sense of being in the moment and, and, and being in, in communion with God. So you can take all these things and you can make them negative and you can make them positive. But the main point is that we are supposed to look ahead to the future, to the kingdom and, and live like at any moment, the kingdom could be here. The kingdom is near, but um, not look ahead in the sense of worrying about, you know, my clothes or my, my family or my future or, you know, how much money am I going to make? That, that's all sinful stuff. What, what's your perspective? Well, I agree with you completely. And in a nutshell, I think you said it right. I'd have to say that we need to live by faith, live our lives day to day, trusting God that he is in complete control, that he is sovereign, that he loves us, that he's an awesome father and he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. So let's give our full commitment to God by burning the bridges behind us and leaving no escape for us to get back into the world. And God will miraculously provide all we need. This is what he said to us on the Sermon on the Mount, which makes it truth. And that, folks, is our lesson. Some of you are listening to this episode on Sirius XM Channel 131, also known as Family Talk. We're on every week on Sundays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern or 5.30 p.m. Pacific. Others are listening to this as a podcast. You can also catch us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and most other podcast platforms. Subscribe to our podcast in one of these places, and you'll get new lessons automatically delivered to your favorite smart device. Of course, you can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We post a link every time we publish a new lesson. Those places are also a great way for you to ask questions and give us feedback. Just search for at M-O-T-K O-R-G. MOTK stands for Mysteries of the Kingdom. Since 20-Minute Bible Studies is a ministry of Mysteries of the Kingdom, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating Christians in preparation for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we go, don't forget, we want to answer your questions and hear your comments, even if you don't agree with what you heard today. If you ask a good question or make a good point, we may even put you on the show. Just give us a call 24-7. Our number is 908-271-6717. That's area code 908, then 271-6717. You can also send an email to info at MOTK.org. That's info at MOTK.org. Speaking of which, you can also visit our website at that address, www.motk.org, not .com, .org. 
That's M-O-T-K, as in mysteriesofthekingdom.org. On our site, you can listen to this lesson again, hear past lessons, or find out more about our ministry. So until next time, we leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple. Our music was recorded by the Abundant Life Worship Center. Our sound editor is J.P. Eli. I'm Steve Zioli. And until next time, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Mysteries of the Kingdom Incorporated.